This is the Eric Francis Show, brought to you by Horse Racing Alberta on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. It's the Eric Francis Show. Usually we have two guests. Storytelling is the focus. The first guest, of course, today is a great storyteller. Spent over two decades with the Calgary Flames organization. Was, in fact, their very first employee when they moved to Calgary, Al Coates. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to answer your questions. So text them in to 960-960, and uh, we'll address it. It's kind of like your your mailbag, your radio mailbag. But first, Al Coates uh, joins me from – where are you, Al? I'm in uh, beautiful downtown Kimberley, British Columbia. Nice out here. Is that where you spend your summers, or are you just out there for, for a little uh, Back and forth. Uh, my wife, Jane, who you know, is from Cranbrook. So Cranbrook's 18 miles from here. And uh, a little quick story, speaking of storytelling, I, I knew I was going to be let go by the Flames way back in uh, 2000, and uh, Jane had a wonderful set of parents, and I uh, was determined, uh, our, our young children, to, to see a lot of them. So we bought a little place in Kimberley, and that's, uh, that was 23 years ago. So we've been back and forth ever since. Pretty good little investment, I'm sure, too. Good for you. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> well, not just... Yeah. It's not just a financial investment, those places. They're investments in your lifestyle. That's the way we always oh, put it. Yeah, well, well, for sure. I, I wish I'd been smart smart enough to do that uh, in the, the time that I was working as a GM or whatever. <laughs> I think I could have used a little uh, investment in my in my health during some of those years. It's <laughs> a good point. Okay, so I, 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 I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time, but I thought of you particularly when – uh, Craig Conroy was hired because I think that the paths are not identical, but there's similar storylines in that he spent over 20, 21 years in the, in the organization doing everything from playing. Uh, he was actually behind the bench for a couple games. He's done everything from scouting. Now he's the general manager. You had a similar somewhat path in terms of starting. I don't want to say at the bottom. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but you started as a, as, basically doing PR for the Calgary Flames. Take take us all the way back to your beginnings with the Calgary Flames uh, when they started in Calgary because it wasn't exactly opulent and swanky and the Calgary Sport and Entertainment Corporation that it is today. It was a little bit smaller of a program. Uh, a l- little bit is, is an understatement. <laughs> yeah, I came, from, uh, I came from Detroit, Red Wings. I, I actually was the only one, I think, that... Uh, probably that didn't come up from Atlanta with the team. Um, uh, I, I came uh, from the Red Wings. My, my title in Detroit had been director of publicity and promotions. And actually, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Bud Lynch, who was better known as the one-armed bandit in uh, Detroit. He was a PR director, and we were great friends. And we actually moved the season ticket base from old Olympia Stadium in Detroit down to uh, the brand new Joe Lewis Arena, which was was not ready when it opened, and and the NHL had the All Star Game in Joe Lewis Arena in uh, in 1980, and yeah, in February of 1980, and there was it was the furthest thing from being ready to host an All Star Game that you could ever see. But in any case, uh, I ran that for the league, and uh, then the following summer. Uh, John Ziegler, I think, who was he was president at the time, reached out to Cliff Fletcher and said, "If you need somebody, uh, I think this guy would be a good hire for you." And, and so that's how it come to be that uh, 
that I moved to Calgary. And a really interesting story about that, uh, Eric, in that I told this uh, when we were when we were doing a little tribute to uh, Bearcat Murray at the uh, Old Timers Wild Game Dinner. I was I was telling everybody that. You know, interestingly enough, in, in Atlanta, the head trainer was a guy named Norm Mackey, who was actually from St. Louis. And the team, when the team was sold and, and moving to Calgary, he didn't want to go, which uh, opened up a spot. And similarly with me, the uh, PR director for the Atlanta Flames was a guy who you probably do know is Jiggs McDonald, mm-hmm. who was the was the PR director slash uh uh, broadcaster for the team, and he didn't want to go either. He had a deal with uh, CBS. So, in both our cases, bears in mind that opened up a spot that uh, with the with the Flames in the early going that we were we were able to get. But anyways, to get on with it, you know, we as everybody knows, we you know we played three years in the corral, uh, awaiting the uh, the opening of the brand new beautiful uh, Olympic Saddle Dome. In the uh, first game was October 15th, uh, uh, 1983. And uh, one more year in the saddle dome than we, uh, or sorry, in the crowd that we expected. But uh, ironically, they were having this discussion right now because last week the Flames Alumni Golf Tournament uh, was last Thursday at Pritis. Yep. And Brad Marsh uh, was in town, and, and, and uh, so we had a little social the night before and, and then the, the tournament the day of. Uh, he has a son that lives in uh, in Calgary, so he's he's in once in a while. But as you remember or know, he was the first captain of the Flames in the 1980-81 season. So we were rehashing some of the stuff in the corral, the you know the sm- what appeared to be a very small ice surface uh, because the boards were higher, yeah. little short benches, and and then arguably the bit, the toughest team in the league at that particular time, and I. I think, if uh, my memory serves me correct, I think we lost four home games uh, the whole year. But uh, it was really interesting because the the, the crowd, I think it was 6,800 seats, if I'm not mistaken. And then there was a row around the, the top where you marked off 18-inch squares and put a number on them. And that was yet another season ticket holder. <laughs> and they had the same they had the same right to double their seats when... The team eventually moved into the saddle dome, as as anybody did in the in the um, seating bowl, and we put platforms in each of the four corners. Uh, Universal, Merkin, Lincoln had one for kids, and et cetera, et cetera. You, you were looking for extra spots everywhere. So uh, anything. Yeah. It was a really an, really an interesting time, you know, those those first three years and the trailers and the and the, my my office was actually one that Scotty Monroe had had. Uh, I was the office closest to the rink as, as you walked out of the, the trailers and through the building. So the Calgary Flames organization operated, uh, I believe it was two or three ATCO trailers and an office inside the corral. Uh, obviously, they that's, take up a, a much right. larger, yeah, it, it, it's a much larger foot space now, or, or footprint now. But well, it's really interesting, you know, because I've also told people, I remember like the, the first year. Uh, well, Cliff Fletcher was the president general manager, and and uh, David David Poyle was there for two years. And you know, for me, I took David's position basically when he left and became the GM of uh, of the Atlanta or of uh, Washington Capitals. But it was really interesting. I remember getting a phone call from Cliff. You know, I'm I'm guessing here a little bit, but sometime mid November, latter part of November, 1980, and he calls me at home one day. Hey, Coachy, we're thinking about having a um, 
you know, a little staff Christmas party at the house. Who do you think we should invite? So I kind of laughed for a second. I said, Cliff, there are seven of us. Who are you not going to invite? <laughs> so that was the thought. That was, other than the team itself, Al McNeil and Pierre Paget were the coaches, and Bobby Stewart was the equipment manager, and Bearcat, of course, the head trainer. And then the players, other than the team itself, there were seven people that, that ran an NHL franchise. And quite wow. frankly, when I got there on, in uh, July 1st, 1980, I started. I mean, we had literally two and a half months to get ready with an NHL schedule to start playing games in, in the crowd, like at our exhibition schedule. So That's wild. There, there was a lot to do in a very short period of time, for sure. So you started out doing basically media relations and amongst other things. Uh, tell me about Tell me about making that progression up to general manager. You're the GM. You're one of only eight men who've ever been the GM of the Calgary Flames in history from 1995 to 2000. We'll get into those years a little bit, but I, I, I want to go back to, uh, you know, well, I, I, I guess I'll go straight to the GM job. My, one of my first questions I thought of when I thought of you and your comparison to, to Craig Conroy is just how different the GM job is now compared to what it was in the mid-90s and 2000. I assume you see it from afar and say, wow, that is dramatically different than the job I had. Yeah, uh, no, no question. I mean, I had I had really good training. I was fortunate to work with Cliff for all those years, and then, you know, um, you know. On a side note, Martha Johnson just passed away last week, and, and brings back memories of uh, Badger coming in and coaching our team, and and how that uh, how that was a significant event, not just for the Calgary Flames, but for the NHL uh, to have somebody how? come in like come in like how? that. But uh, how so? You know, I'm interested in that because it became because of where he came from? Well, yeah, it, you know, it was unusual, really. Like, Herb Brooks had coached the 80 Miracle on Ice and team and was was different, another another college-type coach. But Badger came in, like, it, it was it was crazy. I, I, remember, I remember we were still in the crowd, and he's coaching. And <laughs> Phil Russell and uh, I think Bill Clement, I, I can't remember, a couple of the players, came to me uh, one day and said, you you got to help us with something. I said, well, maybe, what is it? He says, whatever that guy's on, you got to get us something, some because we can't <laughs> keep up. I mean, his enthusiasm was contagious. And, and he had a, he had a, because he was a school teacher, and he, he had a, um, he had a lesson planner with a with two pages open for every day and and notes and articles and stuff he would find. And then he had a lesson plan for what they were going to do in, practice that day and then just like the enthusiasm like you never had a bad day and that's where the, that's where the saying came from with badger bob johnson was that it's a great day for hockey mm-hmm. and uh, martha lived the same life as he did and, and we were all impacted by it and and the whole league was impacted by it in 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 my estimation there was a little bit of a change quite frankly people started to see things differently and and maybe maybe the conventional a uh, hockey guy was not exactly or coach in the NHL was was not not exactly the same. Maybe we've got to be looking in different parts. So, I think I think Eric, there's been an evolution, quite frankly. Uh, like, I mean, I, I was in Detroit with Ted Lindsay, Alex Dovecchio, those guys, and Ted Lindsay, terrible Ted Lindsay. Everybody knows the stories about uh, Ted Lindsay, and then to see the evolution 
uh, Pierre Paget, Al McNeil, into Badger Bob Johnson, and, and then into Crispy. You know, when we when we win the cup in '89, and, and on and on and on to see what's happening in the game in all aspects of the game, and in, and maybe even more so in the business. You know, I, I look at I look at um, benches now and see four and five coaches, like the great Al Arbor won four consecutive Stanley Cups with the New York Islanders, one coach yeah. on the bench. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think it's good. Look at the jobs that it's provided. And then you have the American Hockey League with 32 teams in the American Hockey League and the same thing there. So the amount of people that are being employed now in the National Hockey League with teams and, and with uh, even in the American Hockey League, I mean, I don't know this number, but I, I'm guessing that Calgary Sports and Entertainment probably employs more than 200 people, quite yeah. frankly, now, and, and, and we had seven in 1980 so yeah. you know but it's different and, and and i and i thought about this the other day myself with craig because i think he's so deserving um of this opportunity and i love the passion that he has you know for the game and life in general i mean it'll it'll you know i'm sure it's going to bite him in the rear end here at some point because he's he's so friendly and you're going to run it you're just going to run out of time in the role that you can't be that nice and that friendly to everybody but <laughs> Uh, for sure, for sure, his his path and mine are somewhat similar, at least. Where I think he's deserving. He was he was there nine years, if I'm not mistaken, as a non-player in various roles with the organization, and and I was roughly 15 years before mm-hmm. you know before I got uh, you know the the opportunity to come in as executive vice president and then executive vice president, general manager in the in the latter part of the. Uh, of my 20 years there. Do you think the job's easier or harder? Because you you alluded to it. There's a lot more support staff. I mean, there's capologists. I mean, you, you and I both know how the great work Mike Burke does down there behind the yep. scenes and Chris Snow. And But but at, in the essence, at the end of the day, one job when you're the GM, your, your one job is to be the architect of the team. There are a million ancillary jobs and duties with that. I get that. But is the job of piecing together the team harder or easier than it was back then it's harder for, for sure it, it's harder mm-hmm. but but i think the main thing the the biggest the biggest thing that somebody has to remember is the big picture you you have mm-hmm. to you have to find a way of separating separating yourself away from the minutia and and uh and concentrate clearly on what what is the task at hand which is exactly what you just said is, is putting the team together, 22, 23, 24 people type together, have a plan for that, have a plan for today, for tomorrow, next year, where are we going? And, and you know, hopefully, and I saw your article, by the way, on, on the new building. I mean, if, if you assume, and I hope assume correctly, that there's going to be a new building in three to four years in, uh, in Calgary for the good of the city, uh, and if I can just go on a little tangent here, like we 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 got to get off this fact that 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 it's just for the Calgary Flames. It's not for the Calgary Flames. I mean, they they will be a tenant in the Calgary Flames, and yeah, yes, they need the NHL Calgary Flames need a new building. But if we want if we want to maintain our position as one of the great cities in the world, we we need a sports and entertainment complex there. That that uh, you know that is up to the standards of Calgary and Southern Alberta. It's as simple as that. But what's made, back to your question, what's made, what's made things difficult 
is is social media. You know, like you, you can't do anything without somebody knowing about it, and it can work to your advantage in terms of marketing and ticketing and stuff like that. But it it may, it makes the uh, it makes the the job of the manager uh, and and head coaches, quite frankly, it makes it very difficult. Yeah, yeah, here, here, and 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 of course, I think anyone who listens to this show knows that I wholeheartedly agree that flames are not we we need a, a world-class entertainment center for concerts and gatherings of all sorts so uh, we encourage people to get out and vote today well for uh, sure for sure i mean for sure i mean we've always been jealous in calgary and and it goes back to the time when the team arrived of what was going on up north in edmonton so they had a team before we had a team uh we had the olympics they didn't um but now they have a spectacular new building which from a recruiting standpoint help you recruit, you know, people into your city to, to play on your team. So uh, we need to get after this here um, in, in the short order. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking to Al Coates, former GM of the Calgary Flames. And I wanted to pick your brain on, on so many different things because in the formative years of the Calgary Flames, I think you were part of a big part with your various roles from PR right up to being the GM. In, in in building the brand, building uh, what the Flames stand for, what they are in the community, what you wanted them to be in the community. And I always remember a great story you were telling me. Uh, early in your career, you were in Montreal and you decided to seek out the advice of, of a young Jean Beliveau to, to pick his brain on on culture and just, and, 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 and I guess community, what, you know, what the team means to the community. Can you just take us back to that? Because I think that there's no question about it. The Calgary Flames are a model citizen. Hey, they can be frustrating on the ice uh, for sure. It's, it's, it's part of sports. But off the ice, you know, I just passed this pedal park, or this pump park that's just down the street from my house here. Thousands of kids there every weekend. That's all because the Calgary Flames donated that money. Take me back to that conversation with Bellavo and what he told you. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting because when I looked around, well, I'll even go to a, in a different direction a little bit. Uh, I, I was a firm, firm believer that Hockey Night in Canada with Ralph Mellaby and John Shannon and people like that were, I mean, as, as producers, were a, a way cut above in, in those early years above virtually anybody else. And they would come in and say, we want to do this and we want to do that in the crowd. And some teams would say not happening we're not we're not we're not blocking a seat we're not doing this we're, we're you know we'll tell you how this is going to work you're not going to tell us how it's, how it's going to work and i had the, a completely different view on that because they were the most professional people that i had the opportunity to work with so whatever you want within reason we're going to make it happen because you're going to you're going to give us the very best broadcast and you're going to sell you're going to sell our product so in a similar fashion Early on, when when Mr. Snyder in Philadelphia, um, he's left us now, but he and his wife in the early years, and you can talk to Terry and Sheila Crispin, anybody who ever played for the Philadelphia Flyers back in the early years, like their cup years, and, and, and later, even a decade later than that, they did everything right. I mean, mm-hmm. they whatever they did, it was first class, and, and first class costs a little bit more money sometimes. To do things the other team and it's still that way today in my mind that irrespective of what what it is the montreal canadians are doing and you, you need to look no further 
than the celebrations of, of whether Guy Lafleur or or John Bellevue that we're talking about and 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 how that was handled by the the city of Montreal and by the by the Montreal Canadiens. They were the class. They were the class of the league, in my opinion, on doing things right. Mm-hmm. So I made arrangements. We were going to be in Montreal. I made arrangements to see if if he and he was the ambassador of the team at the time would give me an hour. And we, how many people? Like I feel so fortunate. How many people get an hour with John Bellevue? Mm-hmm. And so we, we just had a really casual conversation, and, and there wasn't anything earth-shattering about it other than it was all about class. It was about perception, about appearance, doing things right, no shortcuts like an image, the image of the team and the image of the individuals. And it was it was what I thought it was going to be, quite frankly, but it was, you know, it was evidence and that, you know, if he says that's the way to do it, <laughs> then that's the way we're going to do it. And, and so little things like, you know, Bill Creighton, the late Bill Creighton and Jay Jenkins, and Stu Henry, we started the Flames Celebrity Golf Tournament in 1981. And Dick Irvin would come and MC it. Red Story would come and tell stories, et cetera, et cetera. And it was arguably the best tournament uh, anywhere in the, in the country. And they would go on television and they would tell people that on Hockey Night in Canada, that it was the best best tournament. And and so we we were able to start, you know, you, you talked about the foundation, but you were, were able to start and and build some momentum in that regard through the tournament and then the, then we would do, you know, a couple of dinners, et cetera, during the during the course of the year. And and I used to go to the players, Lanny and Pep and Timmy Hunter, they were the co-captains, and guys even earlier than that, and I'd say, okay, like, I, I get this. You know, if you look at a flame schedule, then or now, and it's worse now than even back then, but it was bad back then with travel, and the, we weren't chartering either at the time. You know, if you if you blocked off the night before a road game, when you were, sorry, blocked off the night before a home game, say we're not going to do something the night before a home game, and then you looked at other days in the schedule when you uh, freely could do something that didn't impact your on-ice performance. Like, you're going to leave, so we're not going to ask somebody to leave their wife and kids uh, the, night be- the night before or two nights before we're going on a 10-day road trip. Mm-hmm. You, you, mm-hmm. you know what you ended up with? You ended up with six or seven or eight days yeah. in the whole schedule that you, that you could actually do something. So... We, as a philosophy, we said we're, we're going to do this, this, and this, and we're going to do it big, uh, as big as we can do it, and as classy as we can do it. And then some of the other stuff, unfortunately, is just going to have to be left, and somebody else is going to have to do that because we can't do everything. Mm-hmm. So we kind of yeah. prioritize what we, you know, and, and I think they still do that today, and they do a great job of it. We kind of prioritize what, what was important, uh, what we're going to hang our hat on, and now, now when you look and you, you talked about the park and, and uh, the things that the Flames Foundation have been able to do, I think, I think the golf tournament alone is in excess of $4 million that it's raised that we started in 1980, or fall of 1980, yeah, 80. And then last week, the derivative of that is the Flames Alumni Tournament that I think was year 23 for that. And, and, and there again, the what, what they do for CP kids, so that that's 
that's your place for me and, and Harley Hotchkiss and Doc Seaman way back in 1980 talked about this. That that's your place in the community. You 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 have to be you you have to be a participant. You you have a role. You have a role to play, and how you play it is um, is is pretty pretty critical. And sometimes I quite often said like. <clears throat> We have to be careful. We don't do something where we're going to mess it up, <laughs> because yeah. that, that's worse. That's yeah. worse. Yeah. If you're going to do something, you, you got to make sure you're in a position to be able to do it and do it right. And I, I think that was that's how we operated in the, in the early going. And I think to the credit of everybody still there now, I mean, they still do that. They do things right. No, they sure do. And I, I know that you know you you keep passing it along. You did it for many many years and. I know Ken King, with regards to the golf tournament, he took that very seriously. He he hit a vision that he wanted that golf tournament to be played on ten different courses on the same day. He wanted to grow it that to make it that big and and that yep. all encompassing. And you know, dreaming big is is a part of it, but also just carrying it on. And Brian Burke always used to say when he was here in his short time, you know, I don't want any players here. They know that if they come to Calgary, they have to do things in the community. If they don't or they won't, then they're gone. And uh, I don't know if everybody in the front office has always had that opinion because you could lose some pretty good players if that's always the way that you, you position it to players. But the guys who come here, they buy in and they definitely do that. So but I, you I know, go, just on that, just on that note, real, real quickly, just on that note, one of the, one of the big changes, and it wasn't a change for me because I always believed in this. You can't tell people what to do. They get, they got to believe in what, what you're doing. Yeah. So yeah. The, well the key, the key to all of that is, is that the players themselves believing this is a good thing. I want to do this. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to do it 20 times, but yeah. I really <laughs> want to do three or four things during mm-hmm. the course of the year that, that make an impact. So that, that's the, that's the key. Cause you tell somebody what to do. He says, Oh, guess what? I'm not doing it. Simple as that. Yeah, exactly. We're talking to Al Coates, former GM of the Calgary Flames, uh, over two decades of work uh, in various roles with the Calgary Flames organization. And I want to get to the GM years now. And this is a question that you would probably get all the time, but I'm not sure I've ever asked it to you. And I, I see you a lot around the Dome, and you're still very active in charity work and other things around the community, and we thank you for that. But toughest trade you ever had to make here in Calgary? Steve Chason. That's right. You uh, have told me this. Okay, yes, go ahead. Please tell them why. So, well, why? Because, um, and I and I got to be honest, I was asked by ownership if this was a hockey trade or a money trade, and, and uh, it was a little bit of both, but, you know, trying, trying to make sure that we hit our budget, our player budget, and Steve was, uh, you know, sounds silly now, but I think he was at 1-7 or one six or whatever, which was a, seemed like a lot of money in the late, the late nineties. Um, and, and it also had a plan where, you know, if you took uh, Jerome, for example, and then I brought in Mark Savard and Marty St. Louis and Derek Morris and Robin Regeer and, 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 uh, and, um, uh, Jaguar, uh, just as an example, like that was all part of a plan you know, to get, to get people that were of a certain age, you know, and let them grow together, you know? So, um, in the chase on Steve chase on trade, we also lost the, I think in my opinion, the best hockey wife we've ever had. 
and, and his way. But any, anyways, uh, uh, not Don McKelly came the other way in that trade along with the draft pick. And and Nat had played with uh, Jerome in, in Kamloops. Kamloops, yeah. And, and at one and at one point, um, almost had the centerman from that line in Kamloops also in, in a trade, which was Tucker uh, coming from mm-hmm. Tampa. And just, uh, <laughs> they they backed out of it at the last minute. But anyway, where I'm getting to, whether they're trying to get to, is that there was a, there was a plan on how to build this team, and uh, those guys were all part of the plan. And uh, Chase on was a really good player, and then and then what? You know, we all know what happened. You know, after the Carolina Boston playoff game, and and unfortunately we lost him. So that was that was a tough trade to make, anyways, because of the the relationship with uh, that we had with his wife and him, mm-hmm. and even during the lockout or work stoppages or whatever, there was good conversation to be. Had with with him, he was one of the player reps, along with Ronnie Stern. So um, that was that was a tough one. Uh, that that was tough to to make a move like that. That's it's it's interesting to hear that because of course in your time as GM, you uh, you made the trade that traded Joe Newendike out of town to acquire Jerome McGinley. I think probably people would just assume you would say that trade or you traded away Theo Fleury, who was the you know franchise icon at that time as well. Uh, so your story is an interesting one, given that, you know, those seem like natural ones. When I throw those two big trades at you, you know, give me a story or a memory of, of, of one of those two stories that really sticks in your mind. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, dealing dealing with um, the new Indike trade to start with. Um, he had gone to arbitration or the team had taken him to arbitration. And, and there was ill feelings like after that. And uh, it was really, it was really, dis- despite him getting a new contract, uh, just a one-year extension on his current contract, if I remember correctly, it just wasn't going to work. He he'd had it uh, with the Calgary Flames and the Calgary Flames organization. And Jane and I actually went to Toronto and spent a week a weekend with him and Tina um, just to try to talk him through all this stuff and and um, see if you. I have a change of heart or whatever. And he said, um, I'll, I'll come to training camp, but if we don't have something different in place after training camp, then I want to. So, so that was the impetus, I guess, really, you know, Newendike was a terrific player and a, and a great person mm-hmm. type of thing. So, but you're in a bit of a spot where, where I felt the, the role was to make the team better. And to have a player not playing for you was not making the team better. So then you, you take a step. So what do we want here? You know, what, what, what I wanted personally and as a staff, we were on board with this, is we, we want to be able to look at somebody for the next 10, 12 years here uh, as a good player if we're, if we're going to move a good player. And so that was basically it. I mean, not to belabor all this stuff over again. It's been rehashed. I don't know how many times, but yeah, yeah. you got a lot of a lot of different options on the board. Um, everybody wants a player like Joe Newendike, and so I think there were 13 teams, and you whittled it down to three teams. And and if they didn't have an A prospect, uh, which is how we got to the three teams, then they were out. And mm-hmm. uh, so, bottom line on the Christmas deadline. Um, 
uh, you know, we made, made the move, uh, uh, Jerome and Corey Mellon for, for uh, Joe Neuendijk. So it was, it was one of those things that worked out. Bob Ganey was terrific at the other end of that uh, with Dallas. Uh, one of those things that worked out really well for both teams. Uh, Dallas won a cup, the only one they've won, uh, so far at least. And uh, Calgary got a really good player for a long time and uh, captain and now Hall of Famer. On the other nice. one, um, yeah. Theo, you know, we tried, we being ownership and myself, tried to sign him, wanted him to stay. And the late Don Baisley was his agent, and we had a lot of conversations back and forth with Don and, and with Theo himself. And, and, and back to Joe, like I talked to Joe a lot during this process, you know, of, you know, if you changed your mind or whatever type of thing, and same thing with Theo. And we made a we made an offer, a very significant offer to to Theo that would have made him the highest paid player that we'd ever had at that particular time. But they they were in fairness to them, it was they they had that right. He was an impending UFA and um, and had the right to to go to free agency and test the market. So it didn't matter what we did or what we offered. Um, it wasn't going to change their mind until. July 1st, and, and then we, we all know what happened on July 1st, uh, where he signed for the amount of money they signed. So um, Pierre Lacroix, the late Pierre Lacroix, was the GM of Colorado at the time, and the prospects game was in Calgary, and I remember him calling me up and saying, I want to talk to you when I get up there. And that started that uh, process of, um, of, uh, of that move. And when, I, when we knew... Uh, that he wasn't going to sign with us, and it didn't make sense to me to let an asset like that walk out the door for mm-hmm. nothing in return. So, hence is uh, you know that's how Robin Regeer became a uh, Calgary Flame, and there was a supplemental draft pick along with that, a second round pick because Colorado didn't sign him, and we had that pick, and that pick turned out to be Jared Stoll, who then wasn't signed. <laughs> Who was signed and went back into the draft and was drafted by Evenden and Evenden drafted Matthew Lombardi and he didn't get signed and Calgary signed Calgary drafted Matthew Lombardi so it was uh, you know, an interesting interesting time but but an, another another key building block really uh, you know Robin Regeer is a terrific player and uh, you know was was moved to Buffalo and then Buffalo to L.A. and and big big chunk of uh, them winning the cup there just saw robin in line voting <laughs> he's my neighbor and uh, oh, yeah. just saw him uh, at the old at the old school here making our, our votes count uh last well, I'd question be surprised that either one of you if you if you didn't vote i'd be disappointed in either one of you i've already you done go. that oh, we did it we all have done our civic duty there you go one last question for Al Coates. I wanted to ask you, uh, there's a, a letter here on our, our fan feedback line. And, and after we take a break here, I'm going to come back and just answer questions uh, like a mailbag. So the, some of the questions are coming in already. Keep them coming. If you have any questions about the Flames, uh, I would be happy to address uh, several of the different issues that are swirling around this organization right now. Uh, Peter from Calgary writes in, Eric, my friend and I noticed that we were sitting next to Mr. Coates a few years ago when the Flames played the Ducks. He was so gracious with his time. He told us how he watched a hockey game, and I've never watched a game the same since. It's probably tough to put you on the spot and say, how do you watch a hockey game? Because it's innate. You just do it the way you do it. But do you, I think 99% of people watch a hockey game and simply follow the puck. When you're watching a hockey game, 
and again, this is probably tough to put you on the spot. How differently do you watch a hockey game? Well, uh, I'm not the I'm not the greatest uh, scout. I don't think I I think I understand or recognize talent. Um, it is a difficult question to uh, answer, especially if it's the first time you're seeing that particular team that you're watching. Like you go to a junior game, for example, because the mm-hmm. first thing that's going to first thing that's going to jump out at you is somebody who puts in a terrific effort. That, that's likely yeah. the first thing. Ah, but, point, but, yeah. but, but then, you know, you, you got you to gotta go into a much deeper dive than that to find out whether the player's actually going to be able to play or not, quite frankly. And, that, and that's not just junior. That's minor pro and you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I try to look, and this is, this is how I watch sports, is I, I like to watch all sports. I, I remember watching the Calgary Stampeders when Doug Flutie was the quarterback, and Doug Flutie took it upon himself to win the Grey Cup. I mean, he 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 was a difference maker, mm-hmm. and so I I think a lot of times in sports in general, who makes the difference? Like like what does somebody do, whether it's defensively, offensively, physically, whatever, to make the difference in the game? I I, jo- I jokingly, uh, Colin Patterson's listening. He'll get a ch- chuckle out of this. I always call call Colin Patterson our fifty goal guy, and people say he didn't score fifty goals. I said, no, yeah, he scored 15 and saved 35 others. That's 50 goals. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, I think what everybody's looking for, who, who, can, who makes a difference? The, the, great, the great pass to get you out of your own end or, or, or the great back check, the great effort, you know, to, to save a goal or the great play to make a goal. And, and sometimes you have to – I think you've got to watch a long time sometimes because – that difference maker may not do very much for 58 minutes. Mm-hmm. So you better not leave. <laughs> you better not be the typical scout and leave the building with four minutes to go. You, you <laughs> might make, you might miss the difference, but you might miss the difference makers play at the end of the game. But I, I, it's really, you know, it's really a tough question to, to answer, especially if you're seeing guys every night, uh, that, that's a different story. In fact, that's another story because of, I don't even know why general managers travel with their team all the time. I mean, all, all you do is hear, hear and see more problems, and you don't relate them to everybody else's team. So I, I always believed in going. I always believed in going. I, I spent my time going to another game on the road before our game so that I could watch uh, other teams play and then come and join our, our team normally on, on game day. Uh, so... Anyways, it's it's not a very good answer because it's a tough, really a difficult thing to uh, yeah to 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 answer. But uh, but I do appreciate the letter and the, and the kind words from from your uh, listeners. Well, they sure appreciated your time that night, and I've seen you at the rink. You're always so gracious with people, so uh, it doesn't surprise me we'd get a letter like that. I was going to let you go, but I have one other question that someone just sent in. Uh, and this is something I've heard before. I wondered if it was something you could put to rest. He, uh, he writes it. He said, I heard the Flames were asking for Todd Harvey, but Dallas refused and they agreed on a Gimla. Harvey at the time was one hell of a player. I remember covering him at the World Juniors, and he was an absolute stud. Is that true? Is that someone you were asking for, and they just didn't want to make him available? No, that's not true. Okay. No, that's not true. When it came to Dallas, and anybody else we were dealing with in that particular scenario on, on our charts, 
our, our scouting, if they didn't have an A prospect, and he wasn't, he wasn't mm-hmm. listed as an A prospect with us, and, and he is a good player. I mean, was, I mean, was a real good player. But the A prospect in the Dallas organization was Aginla. Yeah. So it was, it was either him or there's no deal with Dallas. Interesting. Simple as that. Yeah. Love it. Al, I appreciate your time, your insights, and, uh, and all the things you do in our community. So thanks for joining me today. And uh, hope to see you around a rink uh, not too soon. Let's enjoy the summer. But then uh, I'm sure I'll see you back at the rink real soon. Yep, you bet. Well, thank you for having me on, and and I wish uh, Craig Conroy all the best. Uh, I think he's going to do a terrific job. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much, Al. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. There he is, Al Coates, former GM of the Calgary Flames. Class act helped shape the uh, Flames into what they are today in terms of just being a very classy organization that does a lot in the community. Uh, He was on our guest uh, hotline. There are Les Pizza guest and sports bar hotline, a 14-time Consumer Choice Award winner. For takeout or delivery, call 403-248-3344 or dine in at Atlas Pizza, 6060 Memorial Drive, Northeast. Uh, Alberta was built on the back of a horse, and horses continue to play an important role in the province today. The Alberta horse racing and breeding industry contributes over $300 million to the Alberta economy annually, and the industry employs over 5,000 Albertans. Live standard bred racing is back, so come experience the races live every Friday and Saturday at Century Downs Racetrack and Casino. For more info on how to get in on the action, visit thehorses.com. Must be 18 plus. Please play responsibly. We're going to take a break, and I'll come back with the, uh, we'll call it the Eric Francis Show mailbag. I'll answer your questions right here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. This is the Eric Francis Show, brought to you by Horse Racing Alberta on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. All right, thanks, Al Coates, for joining us in the first half of the show. The, uh, the notes on the fan feedback line continue to pour in about Al. What a class act he was. Bill writes in, Andrew Howden and I walked into the Saddle Dome to buy season tickets for the 1997-98 season. Al Coates came and shook our hands and thanked us for being there. We were not heavy hitters. We bought first row, 300 level, but we thought he was such a class act for greeting us. I bet lots of people have stories like that. Uh, somebody else wrote in and talked about how Al used to buy, he would drop a wad of American money on the chocolate bars at Winks in Edgemont for about 30 years. <laughs> he, was the, his, he was the cashier uh, who sold them to him. All right, uh, had a chance on last week, uh, over the last week to speak at the Italian Sportsman's Dinner. C- kudos to those uh, organizers. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, some of the other speakers were Marcus Allen and uh, Tommy Wielden Jr. and myself. Uh, there were several other. It, it was just such a great, great uh, night, and they do such a great job. That's such a strong tradition. That was the 59th annual Italian Sportsman's Dinner. Just so much tradition there, and uh, had a blast there. And then uh, spoke on Friday with Phil Esposito, and we brought in a special guest, Paul Henderson. Man, was it ever cool to have those two guys talking about the Summit Series. I know it was 50 years ago, but to have them conversing back and forth, you got to remember before Iggy found Sid. Phil found Phil found uh, Paul, and uh, we had our first original. I guess we it wasn't the golden goal, but it was a big one. So uh, the, those were those guys were great, and uh, we raised over one point three million dollars. I think it was. I don't know what the final total was, but that's where they were at. That's over a weekend of guys playing beer league hockey and gals. There were several group, women's team there too. Fantastic work uh, by the Gordie Howe Cares Committee and all they do. And had a great chat with Todd Bertuzzi. 
there. He was in town. He was telling me that he loved his time in Calgary uh, amongst all the cities he played in. Uh, this was one of his favorite places for a lot of different reasons. And uh, we're endeavoring. I'm going to get uh, Todd on our show as early as next week to talk about his time as a Calgary Flame. He was a fascinating player uh, when he was uh, with the Calgary Flames. Okay, your questions. And thanks so much for people sending them in. Uh, we've had so many people who are sending in questions and uh, either via Twitter or by dialing us up at 960-960, text, texting us on the fan feedback line. And I have to, you know, the, the number one issue I think people are asking about, obviously the coach, um, and, and that's been bandied about a lot lately. Uh, you know, I could see a Ryan Huska-Mitch Love combination. I could also see them bringing in somebody from the outside, like a Tangay or an Andrew Brunette. Kirk Muller's still in the mix in my mind. I don't think you're going to see them seriously look at guys like Gerard Gallant, Bruce Boudreaux, Peter Laviolette. I mean, the price tags are are high on those guys. They, yeah, they have long, successful resumes, but I, I just don't see them paying the big, big money for one of those guys for a team that's kind of retooling on the fly and also paying a coach $4 million to stay home. Uh, I don't think that that makes sense to go out and do something like that. So we'll see over the next week or two when they make that announcement. Uh, congratulations to Milan Lucic and Mackenzie Wieger, Tyler Toffoli and the, the Canadian team at the uh, World Championships. I ended up watching some of that. Man, it was it was fantastic, especially the Latvian team. Wasn't that exciting to watch them uh, celebrate in front of their fans and pull off that overtime win for their very first international medal in hockey history? And they did it in front of their hometown crowd. That was amazing to watch. Okay, questions. Does Wolf start here? That, that's a great question and that, that will be addressed. I mean, Craig Conroy's made it very clear that he thinks Dustin Wolf has done his time and is ready to play in the NHL. And I think his first start in the NHL on the last night of the season was certainly an, you know, indicative of that. He got the win, played very well. So who, who goes? You know, I, I know there are people who are clamoring for Markstrom to be traded away. I just don't see that happening. Uh, a, his stock is way down right now. You never want to trade someone when their stock is way down. B, because his stock is down so low, I'm not sure anyone's willing to stick their neck out and pay $6 million a year for him. I think he's going to rebound and have a fantastic year again this year. And I think that means that the odd man out is probably Dan Vladar. Here's one I'm going to throw out at you. Brad Trilving is the next GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Dan Vladar is their starting goaltender on opening night. Just some fun food for thought. I don't, these uh, predictions don't come with guarantees, no money back guarantees. But uh, I know that he thinks very highly of Dan Vladar. I think a lot of people in the city think very highly of Dan Vladar. And I do think he's a significant asset. And when I spoke to Tree Living just a couple weeks ago, I know, I know that signing Vladar to a two year extension uh, in no way was a mistake or something that squeezed out Dustin Wolf. It just gave them another signed asset moving forward. And, uh, and I, I would imagine that he's the guy the Calgary Flames will turn that, uh, you know, an asset into something else. And then you could see Dustin Wolf start the season with the Calgary Flames. Again, not a guarantee, but I could see that scenario very easily unfolding, especially in light of the comments from Craig Conroy uh, about that great young goaltender who just lit it up in the American Hockey League the last two years. Lindholm. I think outside of the coach is the biggest question going and, 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 and I'm just going to address it briefly because it's something that has been talked about a lot. 
if you don't get an indication immediately that he is going to sign, like you throw, you have to throw him a number. You have to throw him a seven or eight year deal. And if he balks at it and or doesn't show any sort of interest in countering the proposal, then I think you trade him immediately. Like within the month, you you would trade Elias Lindholm. It hurts because this team covets centers above all. And, uh, and, and Craig Conroy knows as well as anybody just how important it is to have a two-way center in your lineup, especially a guy who can play on the top line. But I just don't think the pension is there for him to stay in Calgary. Uh, if that's the case, and I don't see why a guy would sign early, um, you know, why not wait another year? He's coming off an off year. Uh, then, then what do you get in return? That's the next question. What do you get in return for a Lindholm? To me, you look no further than the Bo Horvat deal. That netted Anthony Beauvillier, who's a top six forward, a 20-year-old prospect, and in uh, a top 12 protected first-round draft pick. I think that's the very minimum you get. So you get a serviceable top six forward. You're going to get a top prospect, and you're going to get a first-round pick at the very least for an Elias Lindholm. And if you can't, then you wait. You wait until you get close to the trade deadline. Maybe you start the season with him. It's uh, it's all about the return on this one. That's what's most important and getting that right. So uh, if you have to wait, I don't think that that's, that's a mistake, even if the player is not interested in staying. So there are a few of them. Uh, one, uh, what else we got here? I'm just going to go to the fan feedback line one more time. Oh, Lucic. I do believe Lucic will, well, I know Lucic will be in the National Hockey League again next year. I know there's some people who think that uh, he won't be. I can tell you for sure he will be because I can also tell you that I've spoken to many people around the league and there is a huge demand for muscle in this league, even though it's not a fighting league anymore. I'm telling you that there are a lot of teams that covet a guy like Lucic because of the muscle he provides, the protection he provides, but also the leadership he provides. And we saw that again at the World Championships he was on for a couple of the games that I watched in the final minute of the game. And some people would say that's ridiculous with the big ice, but this guy uh, was out there and he was contributing. So I not only think that Milan Lucic will be in the league next year, I think he'll be in the league. I think he's going to sign a two-year deal. I think he has that sort of leverage to stay in the league. No, I'm not saying he's going to get big money. It, it'll be close to the league minimum. Uh, actually, I, I won't say that. I, it, he's not going to get big money. I'll leave it at that. But I think he can get up to a two-year deal. And the team I'm hearing is Chicago. Uh, I, I think Chicago could probably use a guy like that to protect some of their younger, smaller players, i.e. Connor Bedard. And uh, I think Lucic would embrace that role. I think he'd love to live in Chicago. So uh, remember that prediction as well, that uh, Milan Lucic could end up living in Chicago next year for maybe even more than one-year deal. Okay, that's all the time we have for the Eric Francis Show. I thank you so much for listening this week. And anytime you get a chance, we do it every single Monday at noon to 1 o'clock in the Focus is on storytelling. The Eric Francis Show is brought to you by Horse Racing Alberta. Live standard bread racing is back every Friday and Saturday at Century Downs Racetrack and Casino. Visit thehorses.com. Must be 18 plus. Please play responsibly. I'm already working on some pretty interesting guests for next week. I don't want to blow it by saying it, but Phil Esposito and I have been back and forth regularly, and hopefully next week is the week we make it happen. He said he can do it, so I, uh, I hope that that will be the case. Uh, thanks again for listening. Get out and vote. Do your do your duty, and we'll listen. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks again.